you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to the New Testament Gospel of John, if you would. It's going to be John chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. John chapter 2 and verse 1. And if you were here last week, you might remember that we were in John 2 then as well, so hopefully you kind of left your bookmark there. Uh, but I, we were in the last half of John 2 the first time, and, I, and so I'm taking these... I'm taking these uh, events out of order because what we're going to read today happens right before what we read last week, which was the cleansing of the temple. Uh, but I want to highlight this episode in Jesus' life, not so much because you might have noticed in your in your bulletin, the title of it is a Sunday School Sermon, uh, Water into Wine. This is not really a lesson that we learned in Sunday School. At least I don't, I don't think I learned it in Sunday School. Maybe you did. Um, but I, I want to highlight this episode because this this wording of turning the water into wine and, and that, that idea has almost become part of the American psyche. For instance, uh, and this is this is for people even if they are not familiar with the Bible, if they've never set foot in a church, maybe somebody that uh, seems to think they're pretty good, you might hear somebody else say, well, if you think you're so good, why don't you try walking on water next time? And even if even if nobody's ever been in church, they're so familiar with that that kind of terminology, they know, oh, they're saying, you think you're so good, try being like Jesus. Okay? And it's kind of like that with this, this idea of water into wine. Even if they've never read John chapter 2, they have at least heard that, that phrase. They've heard of this miracle. And so, so what I want to do is, is look at, at, at this miracle. I want to look at its significance, too. Because I think even a lot of Christians don't understand what Jesus is trying to teach here, and I can understand that because I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the text I'm going to preach on. Maybe I have at some point, but this is the first time I've ever preached it personally, and I've been preaching for, you know, I've been here almost 10 years, and I've never preached it. So there's a good chance that if you're like me, you've never never heard a sermon on this, or if you did, it's, it's kind of lost in your mind somewhere. Now, what... Um, what I, what I want us to do as we look at this is we're going to actually see uh, Jesus' first miracle. Sometimes people think that Jesus maybe worked miracles as a kid or something like that. John says this is his first miracle. And, and I, what I want us to see is in doing so, he's ushering in a new messianic age that's superior to the old way of life. He, it's, it's superior to the old way that was dominated by Old Testament law. Okay, this is going to be an era of, of grace. It's going to be an era of gospel. And my hope is that you'll not only recognize that, that this new age is superior, but that, that you'll partake in it in some way if you need to today. So if, if, you, if you found John chapter 2, why don't you stand? And we're going to read uh, the first few verses out of John chapter 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we begin to look at this text, I want us to do it in two main stages. First, I want us to see uh, the miracle itself, but then I want us to see the meaning. And, and, and I'm breaking it up this way because if you look at verse 11 again, it gives us what you might call an interpretive clue. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And the key word there is signs. Now, when we read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Jesus worked miracles. Sometimes there were different words that were used to describe this miracle. Sometimes signs, wonders, miracles. And oftentimes the word that's used uh, to speak of those things is like dunamis or, or one of its derivatives, and it speaks of the wonder-working power of God. But the word that's used here does not speak of power. Rather, it, it, it says that it, the, the meaning is that this attests to something. This, this acts like a signpost. And that's what John's Gospel, that's the way it's arranged. If you'll read throughout John's Gospel, it's arranged around uh, different signs that Jesus performed. And these signs point to who Jesus is and what Jesus was about. So the focus isn't so much on the power, but rather on what it's conveying about Jesus. And so I want us to look at the miracle itself because it really happened. But then I want us to dig deeper and see what the meaning behind that sign is. So let's look at the miracle itself. It's a pretty straightforward miracle, isn't it? There's water, Jesus turned it into wine. Okay, let's move on to the meaning, right? No, um, to, to really understand this, we need to first get some background on, on what happened because marriages are a lot different today than they were back then. They've always been a big deal. Marriages have always been significant, but, but, but it's very different because today we have dating or courtship and then there's an engagement and then the marriage. Back then, it was, it was quite a bit different. Um, today, when, when a couple gets married, for instance, they go, have the ceremony, then they go and eat cake and punch and maybe uh, have a dance afterwards or whatever, but then everybody disperses. They go off to the beach, go off to the mountains, wherever it is, and go to their honeymoon. They didn't do that back then. Today, the focus is on the bride, right? I mean, as, as one, one preacher put it, the, the groom is the necessary evil in today's wedding. I mean, he, he's just got to be there, and, and uh, uh, no, when he comes in, nobody cares, right? The preacher comes in. That's one of the great things about being the preacher at a wedding. You walk in, nobody even looks at you. Somebody said the only person that smiles at the, at the groom is his mom. And so, so, so the, the preacher and, and the husband-to-be the, walk in, nobody bats an eye. But boy, what happens when the bride comes in? Big dramatic music. The doors open in the back. Everybody turns and looks. They stand, right? The groom, nobody cares. Everybody, the bride. The focus today is on the bride. Back then, it was on the groom, or the the Bible puts it as a bridegroom. And so, all these differences. And and so, let's let's break this down just a little bit. Oh, one one other thing. And this is this may be more of a personal thing. Today, the bride and her family pays for everything. As a groom, that's great. Back then, the groom and his family was responsible for everything. Now that I'm the father of a daughter, 
thinking maybe that we should incorporate that back into America. So what happened in their weddings? Usually it happened if it was um, a, a virgin who was getting married, it happened on a Wednesday. If it was a widow that was getting remarried, it happened on a Thursday. And it happened in the evening. So they'd have their, their ceremony, the, wedding, uh, the marriage covenant would be signed, and they, they make this covenant, and then the, the best man, the, bride, the, the bridesmaids, all, all those people, they would parade the new couple through town in the most circuitous route they could take, making a, a, a great big commotion. They had torches. They'd have them under a canopy. A great big deal so everybody in the city would know these guys just got married, and everybody could share the joy. And they'd go back to the groom's house, and then they'd have a feast. They'd be treated like kings and queens, and basically whatever these two said went. So they'd have this feast. Family and friends, of course, were invited, but this was a whole town event. So if, if a couple got married, everybody in the city was invited. After the feast, they didn't just run off to their honeymoon, but instead they went to a specially prepared room, and then for a week they had a feast at the, at the groom's house. Now, this was a, a big, big deal. And you, you put yourself back in that time. You don't have air conditioning. You don't have uh, tractors. You don't have any of that kind of thing. You're working out in the desert in an agricultural setting. This is about the only time you've got to enjoy yourself. And so this was a, this was a huge event. There wasn't a lot of food. There wasn't a lot of partying back then. And so you have a, a chance to take off for a week. It was very welcome. It was something that the, the people looked forward to. Now, we don't know whose wedding this was. Some people think it was the, the disciple Nathaniel because he was from, from Cana. Others think it was John the Apostle. But whoever it was, Mary was already there. She evidently had some sort of authority in the house because she was the one directing the servants, who were probably uh, volunteers, friends of the family. She was the one directing them around. So it stands to reason that she was probably family, kin to some of these people getting married, or at least was a very good friend of the family. Anyway, whoever it was, does anybody like to have people over? Sometimes, sometimes you like to have people over. Sometimes it's one of those necessary evils, right? And, and you have people over, and sometimes it's expensive, isn't it? If they've got them and, and sometimes their kids or something, and you're trying to get the meal out, trying to get desserts, trying to get the drinks, and boy, by the time they leave, you look at your checkbook and it's like, whew, I can't do that every day. Think of doing that for a whole town plus all your friends, all your family for a week straight. That would put some strain on the resources. And that's what happened in this case. Either more people showed up, maybe because Jesus was there, maybe because the extra disciples came, uh, maybe they just didn't have very much money, the, the family. Whatever it was, the wine began to run out. Run out. And remember, hospitality is like a sacred duty over there. So if you can't provide for the people that are in your home, especially at a marriage, that would have caused great shame for many years. And we, we in the, live out in the country, we can identify with this, can't we? Somebody does something in a family... And people for generations will talk about what that person did. I talked to a guy who's lived here all his life, and he said that some folks around here got offended in the Civil War, and they never got over it. And he wasn't joking. There are some families, he said, that just never got over those things. 
you know, in, in the country, we, we just kind of remember things because those families stick around. And so this would have been a huge black eye on the family. So Mary comes to Jesus, and she makes a request of her son. And, and it's, <laughs> this exchange is kind of interesting when you start to think about it. Because how many miracles had he, had he done at this point? None. So why did Mary come to Jesus and say, they don't have any wine? Jesus doesn't have money. He's not going to be able to go out and get some. He's never done a miracle. So it's not like she's saying, you know one of those miracles that you like to do? Why don't you do one of those here? None of that. So why did she do it? Well, um, some people have said the reason she did it was because Jesus was there and he brought along his disciples and so those were unplanned guests and they were partially responsible for the wine running out faster than that than had been planned and so basically she was saying hey Jesus why don't you guys just kind of abominos get out of here sneak on out so nobody notices kind of slow down the, the consumption Calvin the, the commentator from the Reformation he said that she wanted Jesus to give some great teaching to distract people from the fact they didn't have any wine to drink. I think probably she does want Jesus to perform a miracle, not because she's seen him in the past, but remember, she was there when the virgin birth happened because she was the virgin. She knew that, that something special was going on with this young man. She remembered, you remember the angel came and it says she pondered these things in her heart. She treasured them in her heart. And so Mary knew that Jesus was special, that he was different. And just recently before this, you remember we looked at the last couple of weeks, John the Baptist had declared him the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. At his baptism, there's a supernatural event where the Father speaks from heaven, the, the Spirit descends as a dove. No doubt she's heard about that. Just after the baptism, all of a sudden this, this special young man who's had a voice from heaven say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, he has disciples begin to assemble around him and begin to follow him. And so I think she's probably saying, hey, son, think maybe you could get on the ball a little bit. Work a miracle. Let's get this thing going. Let everybody know you really are the Messiah. And was anybody kind of shocked in verse 4, the way he responds to her? Because in, in, to our ears... This sounds really rude. He says, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Your, your translation may say it a little bit differently, but the first word that he uses there, woman, to us, we hear it like this. Woman! Right? That, that's not what he said. That, no, that's not what the way he said it. That's the way we hear it. We hear Jesus going, saying to his mom, Woman! And we say, not my house, right? Jesus, you, that's not the way you talk to your mom. The reason, the reason it's, it's so abrasive sounding to us is because we don't have a term in English that really translates what he says in Greek. Now, Jesus uses the same word numerous times when he talks to people. In, in, the, in the Gospels, he, he talks to the Canaanite woman, the, the mother who says, my, 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 my child is demon-possessed, and she keeps after Jesus to, to do something, and finally Jesus says, woman, 
your faith basically is, is great. The woman that was bowed over for 18 years because of an infirmity, Jesus said, Woman, thou art loosed. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he speaks to her about the water of life and he calls her woman. The woman caught in adultery. Remember, everybody's going to stone her. Jesus says, You have no sin, cast the first stone. He saves her from getting stoned. And he, he turns to her and talks, and he, says, he calls her woman. To Mary Magdalene, in the garden tomb, she comes to find the body of Jesus. He's been resurrected. She thinks he's a gardener. You remember that? And he speaks to her, and he says, Woman, why are you crying? On the cross, Jesus is hanging there. And John and Mary are standing at the, at the foot of the cross, and Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. And, and she entrusts Mary into the, gospel, uh, into the disciple John's care. In none of those places do we hear him going, Woman? But here we, we hear, Woman? What's the difference? There is no difference. It's, it's used in the same way. It's a term, in, in Greek, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of, of love. It's respectful. Now, it would be odd for a Jewish man to refer to his mom this way. So it's creating some distance. But it would be kind of the equivalent of us saying ma'am or madam or lady. It's like he's telling her, and this, okay, I'm going to extrapolate from woman. Here's kind of, I'm going to unpack it a little bit and put it in my words. You're my mom, and I love you. But I'm entering a new phase of life. I'm now entering my public ministry as Messiah. And before, I lived in subjection to you at Nazareth, but now things are changing. Now, because I'm fulfilling my role as Messiah, I have to do the Father's will on His timetable. You want to come to me and say, do this miracle now, I'm saying I've got to do what the Father wants me to do when He wants me to do it. All in woman. So, he says, woman, and then, depending on your translation, what does that have to do with us? Your, your translation may even have him saying, what do you have to do with me or something similar? And we say, whew, why is he saying, why is he saying that? Again, every language has its, its phrases, its idioms that don't translate well. This is one of them. It can be used in different ways, but the, but the basic idea, the way it's used here, essentially means you don't understand. He's not saying, I'm not going to act, because he does. He's saying, Mary, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. You want me to do this, this miracle to prove to everybody that I'm the Messiah, so everybody in Israel will say, this is the Son of God, we will believe because he's turned the water into wine or do some miracle. But you don't understand what you're asking, because I am going to do miracles, and some people will believe, but the nation of Israel as a whole is not going to believe. You don't know what you're asking for. And I wonder how many times he thinks that about us when we pray. Lord, please do this. Please do that. And he's saying, Jeff, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't have any idea. Now, it's obvious that she's not offended because what is her response in verse 5? His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And again, you unpack the Greek, and it means whatever he says to do, you do it right away, even if it seems odd to you. 
So what is his solution? His solution is to take our, my translation says jars or pots. These are not mason jars. These are like barrels, 120, 180 gallons as a whole. And he says, fill those up with water. He doesn't tell him what he's going to do. Can you imagine being one of those servants? He says, you take these, these big barrels that people used to wash their hands in, because that's what they did. They washed their hands a lot, the Jews did. Right before they ate, in between courses, that was a big thing. You take this, 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 these, these jars, these jugs, these, these barrels that people basically are washing their hands in, fill that up with water, and then take a cup of that to the head waiter and have him take a drink of it. Because that's part of what they did. They, they would taste the wine before everybody got it. And can you imagine being that servant? I bet they're going, oh, paper, scissors. You know, trying to figure out who's going to be the one to take the water to the head waiter for everybody. Can you, can you imagine taking that up? I don't know when it, when it turned into wine. Did it happen in the pot? Did it happen when he put it to his lips? Who knows? But they took it there, and this, this head waiter who didn't know what had happened drinks it, and he says, this is, this is a great wine. Most of the time, people, they serve the good stuff at the beginning, and then after people's tastes have dulled, then they you know, bring out the stuff that comes in a box and, and serve that. The cheap stuff. But you have saved the best to last. Everybody's drunk freely, and now you're bringing out the good stuff. Man, you don't care how much people drink. This is, this is fantastic. And so he, he compliments the bridegroom on this, and the bridegroom has enough sense to just keep his mouth shut. He, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll take credit for that. And so when he does this, Jesus changes one thing into something totally different. It's a creative act. No show. He didn't go and wave his hands over it. He didn't speak to it. He just willed it, and it happened. It's a creative act of God. Straightforward miracle. So what does it mean? John said this is a sign. What is it a sign of? All kinds of means are wrapped up in this. One thing is that it shows that he's got the creative power which belongs to God only. If you'll keep your place in John 2, turn back a page or two to John chapter 1 and verse 3. It's talking about the, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What is that saying? Jesus has creative power. He willed it and it happened. That's something that only God can do. Another meaning that's wrapped up in this is that he's sanctifying marriage. It, it, it reaffirms what Hebrews 13.4 says. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And blessed is the marriage that invites Jesus to be part of it. It's also a model for prayer. Mary does a, I mean, this is fantastic. She comes to Jesus, she says, here's the need. She doesn't say, this is what I think you should do, this is when I think you should do it. None of that, she just says, here's the need. That's it. And then, to the waiter, she says, whatever he does, says, you do it. Wouldn't that be great if we say, Jesus... Here's what's going on. And then whenever he told us to do something, we said, okay. Model for prayer. All those things are legitimate applications of this, but there's one that I want to bring out that maybe isn't quite so familiar. It may seem kind of odd to us today, and it's kind of unfamiliar, but back 
in the Gospels, a few times Jesus likens the Gospel itself and the new way of doing things to old and new items. For instance, he says you don't take old, uh, new fabric and patch old fabric with it. He also says you don't take new wines and put it in old wineskins. What does that have to do with this? Well, what's the picture he's painting? He's saying, if you have an old garment, you don't take new material and sew it over a hole that you've got in the old one. Because if you do that, when you wash it and you dry it and everything like that, that new fabric is going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to tear that old garment that you patched, and the hole is now going to be bigger than the one that you just got through patching. He's saying the old and new way of doing things are not compatible. You can't patch up the old by putting some new onto it. It doesn't work. He also says... These wineskins, you know what's a wineskin? Well, they take a goat or something like that, and, and oftentimes they would they cut it at the legs and, and the neck, and they would, they would skin it, and they'd pull the skin off all in one piece, and they'd sew up the, the legs and, and leave the, the neck of it open, and that's where they'd pour their, their wine out of. And they'd partially tan it. And so here you'd have these big goat-sized wineskins. They put that, put that grape juice in. Of course, they didn't have hermetically sealed anything. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have refrigeration. And so out in the hot desert, that grape juice would begin to ferment. Now, they wouldn't add yeast and all the stuff they do today to make it have alcoholic uh, content. But anyway, as that would ferment, it would give off gas. And those skins were very elastic, just like our skin today. You know, you can pull it and it'll snap back. Well, those gases would make it get bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you put that new stuff in an old wineskin, you know, leather gets kind of stiff when it gets older. And he says if you did that, put the new wine in an old wineskin, those gases would give off and it would burst the old wineskin. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the old cannot contain the new. So God's not going to be pouring the, pouring the new gospel of grace into an old container of law because that can't contain it. Instead, God's in the business of doing something new. And so Christ, when he comes onto the scene, a new era is being inaugurated. Now it's not law, it's grace. It's not works, it's gospel. It's not the old covenant, it's the new covenant. So this is all something new. And, and, and what are these, look again at what it says in um, verse 6. There were six stone water pots set there for what? The Jewish custom of purification, external washings. These are things that are laid down in the law, also rabbinical teachings. This is the old way. Washing your hands is not going to get you in good with God. And Jesus is saying, you know what? A relationship with God is, is more than being zestfully clean. It's being washed inwardly. Now, how do we, who do we associate the old covenant with? Not that covenant. The one that was given on Mount Sinai. Moses. What was his miracle? First one in, in, in Egypt. He stood on the banks of the Nile, and what happened? The water was turned to blood. <laughs> Jesus turns the water not to blood, but to wine. The, the, the law, Paul says, brings death. It shows us our shortcomings, but it can't do anything to fix us inwardly to change our heart. But in contrast to that, Jesus gives us a new covenant, and, and the book of Hebrews talks about this. It's not an outward thing that's written on tablets of stone. It's an inward thing that's written on the tablet of our heart. 
And so the law brings death, but grace brings life. The gospel brings life. And so when Jesus performed this miracle of turning water into wine, he's starting something totally new. He's transforming the old, the water, into something new. He's transforming it into wine. The rabbi said, where there's no wine, there's no joy. Now what does that mean for us? It means that that we need to not get bogged down with legalism. How do you know if you're being legalistic? You ever felt guilty whenever you're having a good time? Well, I should be I should be having this much fun. Maybe some legalism in there. When we say, Oh, if I if I'm if I do this, then God will be obligated to do that. If I just live my life according to the Ten Commandments, God is kind of obligated to treat me well. And that's not really how it works. It's not about keeping the law. Paul, he, he talks to the Galatians. He says, y'all were saved by grace and you're wanting to turn back and, and go back to the old way of doing things. You're wanting to go back to works. And if you're wanting to do it by works, you might as well forget it because nobody can keep all the law. It's all by grace. See, law and grace are not compatible. They're like the old and new fabrics. They don't work together. The new covenant in His blood is much superior. It's a lot better. Before we had shadows. We had the the sacrifices. had all these things. Now we have the substance. Now we have Christ. So don't go backward. Don't try to go from, from being saved by grace to keeping it by works. That doesn't work. You're saved by grace and you're kept by grace. But to go along with that, it's a sign that Jesus brings transformation. He can change something old and plain to something new. He transformed the water into wine. He, he transforms our interaction with God. Now we have direct access to Him through Christ. He transforms our hearts and our lives. And that's what He wants to do in my life. That's what He wants to do in your life. If you're not a follower of Christ today, today you should get that way. You should follow Christ. You should repent of your sin. You should turn control of your life over to Him. And He will transform you. He'll start making a change from the inside out. He'll give you new life. He'll turn the water into wine. But for those of us who already are believers, He's wanting to do that too. Because every day He's in the process of transforming each of us to be more like Jesus. It's called sanctification. Great big word. And the Bible says that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. The question is, will we cooperate as he's changing us? That's what we're all called to do. To, to, to follow Christ and to let him transform our hearts. And that's my call to you is, as Jesus transformed that water into wine, let him transform you 